God's promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. The Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent of my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I have commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. And as we uh, think about this now and open our thoughts, Lord, to receive what you would say to us through it. May these words written centuries ago speak to us today and draw us into the future with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we're going to get some slides up. Um, So we're continuing Sacred Spaces. Uh, We've looked at a few different things. Here we go. Today we're looking at what it means to be a Christian at home. Uh, What does it mean to be a Christian at home? Uh, because, as the next slide says, there is no place like home. There we go. Um, but as I was thinking about home and going through our series, we've looked at uh, our dining tables, the place of hospitality. We've looked at schools with Alan. Thank you very much for last week, that place of learning. Uh, we've looked a little bit about church. Uh, but home is the place that intersects all of the other places that we go into. If we go into the next slide. So home is the bit where we go out everywhere. Uh, We go out to church, we go out uh, 
to work. We go out into our neighbourhood, that's coming up in a couple of weeks' time. It might be where we go to work now, because in the pandemic, uh, obviously home became a place of work for many of us. It also became the place of school for many, many people. Uh, and that, I mean, that in itself is something that uh, our children, we need to remember that the children uh, are still suffering a lot from the loss of time together, the loss of social interaction that they missed out on uh, during the time of the pandemic. Uh, so home is a really, obviously, a very integral part of our lives. And as we look at this passage, we need to sort of recognise how individual our homes are. Uh, they're very special to us. They're unique. They're where we can express our identity for many of us. Uh, and as we go through this passage, I just want us to keep one verse in mind. We can have that next verse up. We'll leave that up. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Uh, I did mention to Keith asked about how their work is going on the house, which is which is lovely to see. Uh, I did promise that I didn't choose this deliberately for the Sherwood family, uh, but it is for all of us. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labourers labour in vain. I just want to make the point that um, too often in the church, we have thought about a Christian home as being one where there is mum and dad and two children who are perfectly behaved, uh, ages 8 and 11. And that is what the Bible intends as a Christian home uh, and, and as long as you're in that, then that's fine. Uh, clearly, that is not all the Bible has to say about us as home. There are some very obvious flaws in that. Because many of us don't live in a house with mum and dad and two perfect 8 and 11-year-old children. Uh, in the UK census information of 2022, 43% of families had no children living with them. There were 2.9 million lone parent families. And almost all the projected increase in households by 2041 will be among one person and multiple adult households without dependent children. So if we have this idea that a Christian home is mum, dad and 2.4 children, are we saying that the Bible has nothing to say to the rest of us? I've mentioned my dogs, they're the closest I have got to children. Does that mean that my home is not children? So I just want to reassure you that if your home does not look like that, it is no less valuable as a place to honour God. It is no less valuable as a place to meet with him and glorify him. Because if we are a Christian, this Holy Spirit is indwelt within us and we take the sacred with us. Our homes are all called to be places where we honour God, whatever shape, size, and makeup they have. Homes are the place where we are who we are when nobody else is watching. They are the place of no hiding place, we can't wear the mask we may wear in the, all the other settings we find ourselves. And we cannot pretend, even to ourselves, that we are everything we want to be. And we cannot hide from God that we are not everything he calls us to be. 
So as we turn to this passage, it is a place, home is the place where we open our hearts to God, warts and all, where he meets with us, whatever struggles and strains, whatever home looks like. It's the place to be honest and open about who we are before God and our need of him. And as we turn to this passage, that is what we can see in this short excerpt from the life of David. Now, in this passage, there are three houses, all using the same word. Uh, so there's a play on words that if you're reading the NIV has missed, well, it's kind of interpreted one already for us. So the first house is the palace. That is the same word as the house that means the temple of God, the house of God. And then house is used to mean the dynasty, the royal household of David. We are used to royal uh, names being used. You know, we are under the house of Windsor with King Charles. So house, in the context of what it's written here, can mean David's home, his palace. It can mean the house of God, the temple, and the royal household of David. Now this passage starts with David in a good place. In chapter 5, if we'd read two whole chapters before, he has been anointed king of the combined kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And then Jerusalem has been made the capital of that combined kingdom. And then in chapter 6, we can read of how he has brought the Ark of the Covenant, that symbol of God's presence with the people as they wandered that ark has been brought to Jerusalem in a great, great triumphant procession. It says that there were 30,000 men. Now that, that procession was not without incident, uh, but that's another story for another day. And then in today's chapter, David starts off in his house, house number one. It is his palace. It is newly built a place, a palace of cedar and stone. If you look in chapter 5, verse 11, it says that the, one of the other kings, I can't remember who right now, uh, provided the cedar wood to build this palace. He is settled. It says that he is settled. He has got rest from his enemies. He is safe. He is king. And he comes up with this great sounding plan. He says to himself... It's not right that I have a palace and the ark of the Lord is in a tent. I will build a house. This is house number two. God's house. I will build a temple for the ark of the covenant. This must surely be an honouring desire, for uh, an honouring to God. His heart is surely in the right place. He sounds humble and grateful for all he has. And in that procession that I just mentioned, he has offered sacrifices and praise to God. The people are all looking to him as the appointed ruler. So what could possibly go wrong with this plan? He even talks to Nathan the prophet, who agrees and says, you do all that you have in mind. And he even reassures David. He says, the Lord is with you. What a great idea. I'm going to build a temple for God. The problem is, they agreed this plan and neither of them had consulted God. 
If you look at the first three verses of this chapter, neither of them consulted God. <coughs> they are acting as if David is in charge. And in that moment, neither of them let God reign in the palace. So later that night, Nathan receives the message that all is not well with this idea. God says to him, just hang on a minute. And then he asks David a series of rhetorical questions. Have I ever asked you to build a temple? Have I ever said that I was discontented with being in the tent? Have I wanted to be confined into one place? David was trying to get ahead of God's plan. Now let's not forget, building the temple would have been highly prestigious. Back in the day, it was the way kings and rulers made claim to power, where they showed the world of their own anointing, confirming their legitimacy as king. The greater the temple, the greater the honour. Yet David's God, the one true God, was content to reside in a tent. So perhaps David wasn't being quite as entirely humble about the contrast with his own palace. Perhaps he wanted to show to the neighbouring nations that his God was greater than theirs. But God would rather dwell in a tent where he is moving with the people of Israel than in a house made of cedar that he has not appointed. And then in verses 8 to 16, God speaks to Nathan the prophecy and the promise that he does actually want for David. He brings in the idea of that third house, David's dynasty. The focus in Nathan's vision is very much on what God has done for David and what he will do for David's lineage. He will make David's house Great. I wonder how surprised or disappointed David was when David came and gave him all the details of the vision that brought an end to his plans for the temple. If David was disappointed, then surely that disappointment was a, that disappointment was immediately quashed by David's promises. God says through uh, Nathan that David's name will indeed be great, that Israel will have rest from her enemies, that one of David's offspring will build the temple, and that his house, David's dynasty, will be established forever. And if you go back and read this chapter again, perhaps this afternoon, please note that in verses 12 to 15, there is a re it, it is referring to Jesus... Uh, it's referring to Solomon uh, as David's line. It is tempting to automatically think it is referring to Jesus. These promises are huge. They are what David probably was very excited to hear 
And if we read on, we see that he responds in prayer and then realigns his posture before God. He started by thinking about his own ideas and not consulting God, but he realigns his posture before God in humility and prayer. He stops thinking about what he wants to do and dwells in praise and acceptance of what God is going to do. If you read on in the Bible, you will see that David still goes on to supply the raw materials for the building of the temple. In accordance with God's plan, though, he hands over that building project to Solomon. It was not inherently wrong for him to desire to be the temple building builder, but it was not what he was called to go. So in this passage... It starts with David saying, this is what I'm going to do. But God steps in and says, no, this is what I'm going to do. It starts with David's building plans and ends with God's building plans. And when we think about building a home that is a sacred that honours the God we claim to follow, we need to relinquish control. Allow God to reign and do the building. Allow God to tell us what his building plans are. We need to let him do the design and the building and let him be the master builder. If you are familiar with the story of David, that great king, you will know that there are times when he had great triumph in fighting God's battle. But there were also times of immense personal failure and guilt. We know the times he hit absolute rock bottom. The Bible reports his life, warts and all. We see who he is in private, and in public, we see who he is when nobody else is watching. And it is at that intimate level at which God knows us. We cannot pretend that our lives are all okay all the time. And we cannot wear a mask. There is no place of pretense before God. He knows what we are like at home, where nobody else is watching. He knows our deepest sorrows, the times the pillow is damp with tears. He knows the mistakes we make and keep making, much to our own frustration. We know He knows who we are when we let ourselves down and let others down. He knows who we are when we hit rock bottom. And he knows all of that and still loves us. It is in these moments that we are called to relinquish control and let us, let him help us build a home that honours Christ. Putting Christ at the head of the house and nobody else. 
And as that verse from Psalm says, unless the Lord builds the house, the labours build, the builders labour in vain. But that psalm, Psalm 127, one of the psalms of ascent of the people of Israel journeying to Jerusalem to pray, that psalm is attributed to Solomon. David's son, who in Nathan's vision that we have just read, was the one appointed to be the temple builder. If David had built where God had not asked him to build, the psalm that his son wrote, who was the builder, tells us that David would have been building in vain. You get this whole circle and it shows how connected the Bible is with all the stories that sometimes seem disjointed, but it was all drawn together in God's plan. But as I reflected on this and how home is a place of brutal honesty sometimes, we do recognise that our homes are places of great joy and, I hope, happy family memories. But like David, it is also a place where we can most acutely face our own failures or feel deep disappointment with God. We may have hoped for a home that was filled with the hustle and bustle of children, and it isn't. We may have hoped for a home shared into old age with the companionship of a loving spouse, but whether through singleness, divorce or widowhood, it isn't. We may have hopes for a home that we can call our own and make our own, painting the walls the colour that we choose. But because of financial constraints, we can't. Just like David's desire to build a house for God, those things of hope are not inherently wrong. But in our disappointment, if these things have not happened for us when we wanted them, these are the things to turn over to God and let him reign. Let him meet us in our hour of need. I can't promise you that there will be a Nathan in your life who will bring you God's vision with such specific and spectacular promises that David received. <coughs> but we do all have the promise of God's presence with us now. That, pro that promise of presence is not dependent on having a perfect family life. It is dependent on the goodness of God. David said, this is what I'm going to build. And, they, and God responds, no, this is what I'm going to build. And whatever life is like, whatever home is like, we have the promise in Christ of an eternal home. The Bible reassures us that no matter what life is like, this is temporary. John 14 says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back 
and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am, where I am. The eternal home that we are promised is one where we will be with Jesus. It is one where there is space for everybody who responds. And that invitation doesn't change because God knows you and he loves you anyway. He sees who you are when nobody's watching and he loves us anyway. If who you are when nobody's looking is somebody you fear is beyond the reach of God, let me encourage you that nobody is beyond the reach of God. We've talked about Storm Kieran this week. Uh, That storm that perhaps challenged us and wondered if the roof was going to stay on. But this week has also been dominated by the death of Matthew Perry, the actor from America, if you haven't heard of him, a global superstar, and I suspect you've certainly heard of him this week. In his autobiography, Friends, Lovers and the Big Terrible Thing, He was willing to reveal who he was when nobody was looking. He had addictions to alcohol, drugs, and painkillers. I read that at his worst, he was taking 55 painkillers a day. But what has not been reported, whilst he was willing to be open about his addiction and his desire in his openness to help others, but he was also willing to lay bare what he thought about God and prayer. That book was published almost exactly one year before his death. And when it was uh, published, there were various interviews with him talking about all that the book said. But he was very open and talked about the prayer that he had prayed. He described it as a dumb prayer. The prayer of a 14-year-old And he admitted that it was the prayer of a 14-year-old, even though he was in his 20s when he prayed it. It went like this. God, you can do whatever you want to me. Just please make me famous. You can see why he thought it was the prayer of a 14-year-old. Three weeks later, he landed the part in Friends, which was the part that turned him into a global superstar. It was the biggest American sitcom of the 1990s, and by the end of its run, after 10 years, he and the lead actors were all making a million dollars per episode. But he was also open about another prayer. One that he prayed, sorry, I find emotional because I'm tired. I'm going to get emotional on this, so apologies. But he, he prayed another prayer at his lowest point, about 10 years later, when he was famous and realised that it wasn't everything he thought it might be. And in his desperation, he said, God, please help me. Please show me that you are here. And he reveals that at that moment, he had an encounter with God that left him weeping uncontrollably. Sorry. I just, I, I mean, I feel, I feel people's stories are really impactful. So I'll just take a minute. 
I find it very moving when you hear about how God impacts the lives of, of people. He said, God, please help me. Show me that you are here. And he said, he sobbed uncontrollably. He said, I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. He said he spent years struggling with faith, but in that moment, all the pain and the hurt he'd so desperately been trying to escape, all that pain disappeared. He said, I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And comparing this to his childish prayer that he called that dumb prayer for faith, he said this, this time I had prayed for the right things, help. God had shown me a sliver of what life could be. His conclusion on this meeting with God was this, he saved me that day and for all days, no matter what. He had turned me into a seeker not only of sobriety and truth, but also of him. That hasn't been reported this week. What has been reported was a famous rich actor who was addicted to drugs, loved by many, has died. But actually, in his willingness to reveal who he was at home, he has also revealed that God loves everybody, that nobody is beyond his reach, no home is beyond his reach. So if who you are at home is someone who you think that God cannot meet with, that God doesn't love, please know that you are mistaken. He loves you. Turn your home over to him, no matter how desperate you feel, and just say, God, please help me. We had some words from Isaiah, that promise of living in safe habitation, in peaceful home. But just before that prophecy in Isaiah, it talks about the, the uh, spirit being poured out. And John Oswald, the theologian, says, God cannot fill where he does not rule. Let God rule in your home and in your heart, and his promises will fill. Will fill your home and fill your heart with his love. Let us pray. Loving God, we know that before you we have nowhere to hide ourselves but to trust in you, to turn to you in our desperation, in our hour of need. Whether there are habits and addictions that tangle us and keep us low, whether there are times and issues that cause us great pain and disappointment, help us to trust in you to turn them over to you, 
to know that you will meet with us in our deepest needs. Lord, we thank you for the promises of the Bible. The promise of your presence that you will never leave us nor forsake us. The promise of the Spirit, the Comforter, the Counselor. And the promise of an eternal home in Christ Jesus. For that promise that there are many rooms. Lord, we open ourselves to you and say again, Lord, rule in our hearts and in our homes. Amen. And to lead us into our time of communion, that place. <coughs>